On today's episode, I'm answering questions about how to treat a dog who has suddenly become anxious all of a sudden when it's really out of character. I'm then talking about a dog who has started panting even when they're resting. What could be causing that? Because the owner doesn't think that the dog is in pain. And then finally, wolves and dogs. What are the similarities? What are the difference, especially in relation to feeding practices and grains? But before we get into all those questions, here's the intro. Welcome to Call the Vet, the show that answers all your dog and cat questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian Dr. Alex Avery. Hi and welcome to episode number 24 of Call the Vet. Although really, if you've listened before, this is actually the first episode under this name. So if you're expecting the Dr. Alex Answer Show, then don't worry, you're still in the right place. So last week on episode 23, I discussed why there was going to be a name change. And really, it's because Call the Vet is just generally a bit more descriptive as to what this podcast is all about. So it's a show where I answer any questions that you have about how to prevent disease, how to keep your pet healthy, be that a dog or a cat, how to pick up on the fact that they might be unwell and the things that you need to think about when it comes to treating them for whatever illness or injury they happen to suffer from. So the new name Call the Vet just it really uh, describes that a lot more better for people who are new to the show or who are kind of thumbing through their um, their feed on iTunes or Stitcher or, or um, Spotify or wherever you're listening to the podcast. So that's the reason for the change. But don't worry, the show is exactly the same as it has been. Um, I'm going to be answering the questions that you send me just so that I can help you and your pet live a healthier, happier life, which is what I'm all about and what I'm all about over on the website at rpetshealth.com as well. Now, if you enjoy the show then make sure you hit the subscribe button and you can also like I say get your question answered and that's absolutely essential that you send in your questions for me to be able to produce this podcast and you can get those answered just by heading over to callthevet.org so that's the new website there as well which will take you through to a form to submit your question and there's also soon be a feature where you can actually leave a voicemail message to be featured on the show in future so keep an eye out for that um, and I hope you'll take full advantage of that But for now, let's get into the first question. And this question is from Lou, who writes that um, she has a 10-year-old Pomeranian. Um, She's had her to the vet three times and three actually different vets and had blood work done. And everything they tell me is that there's nothing wrong. But her Pomeranian is getting anxious all the time, which is really not like her. So what could be going on? What could be the cause for this anxiety? So my really first thoughts are that there are two potential reasons that we could get this sudden anxiety in Lou's dog. So she could either have had a fright or a shock um, and be really anxious or worried as a result of that. And that could be anything. It could be a dog attack, a dog kind of coming up and suddenly barking and rushing at the gate while you were walking past. It could be a sudden loud noise, something like a car backfiring or fireworks or something just really unexpected. Uh, It could also be a change in environment or routine, um, especially a more significant change. So is there building work going on? Uh, You know, and that might not even be in your house. It might be kind of down the road, but it's just a real disruption especially if she's been a bit of a kind of a nervous nervous character at times anyway so you know there's some some things there so have a little think about if any of those things have happened but of course you know if you're not around all the time if you're out at work then it might be that you're not actually aware of something that has happened to make her anxious but you know that's probably my first and main thought the other potential is that um 
that your dog at 10 years old could be suffering from something called canine cognitive dysfunction, which we can actually just think of as old dog senility or dementia. And the changes in an older dog's brain who's suffering from senility or dementia are very similar to ours. So, you know, the the, the result can be the same. But if we start off by the most common thing, and that is a shock or a fright, um, you know, really given the examination findings and blood results that have been been normal on most on those multiple occasions with different vets then i think this is the most likely cause but there's no real test that can diagnose this so there's nothing that your vet can do to um, you know to take a blood test to look at a, a kind of a result on a piece of paper or on examination findings if we're if we're getting everything coming back as normal then you know we then think well is it a behavioral problem uh is it a uh, a kind of a mental problem rather than a result of any physical physical issue so when we're thinking about how we can try and kind of help this dog who's suffering from anxiety to reduce that anxiety to make them calmer um you know and improve their quality of life ultimately because there's nothing worse than being anxious being really wound up and uptight and worried all the time really have a little think is there any activity or situation where this anxiety or where this fear seems worse are there certain situations that she really you know really doesn't get on with uh and then there are other situations where she's much more comfortable if that's the case then really in the first instance just try and avoid the situations or the activities where that anxiety becomes a real issue and then depending on what the problem is we want to slowly introduce these situations at low levels so if for example it's when she's out and when she's seeing other dogs we want to in the first instance kind of really just not see any dogs kind of get her comfortable going out go to places where there aren't any dogs and then once your dog's happy doing that then you want to introduce dogs at a really far distance kind of distracting her all the time where there's no chance these dogs could come closer and then slowly just reduce that distance between those dogs so that's just one example of what we what we might do there the other thing we can do is we can trial treatment and there's a number of different treatment options that we can can give and and treatment doesn't just involve kind of pharmaceutical drugs so the first thing is to use something called dog appeasing pheromone so that's a product called adaptil and this is a synthetic version of a pheromone so that's a a chemical that's naturally produced uh, by nursing mothers and it helps bonding and it's been shown to help with certain stressful situations to reduce anxiety to reduce stress and to have a really calming effect now the benefits the other benefits of this product so adaptil and i'll leave links in the show notes for this if you're interested is that it comes in a collar version um, or a diffuser a room diffuser or a spray so that allows us to use it in lots of different situations so a collar is ideal for a dog who's always anxious because it basically travels around with them when wherever they're going so they're taking this pheromone with them and it can just have a great general calming effect we can use it as a diffuser so if for example it's firework season then you might want to plug this into the to the room where your dog stays during the fireworks it releases that into into their environment and helps keep them nice and calm as well as a few other steps that you should be taking if your dog is is afraid of fireworks or does get anxious and then it also comes as a spray which would be great if for example you were traveling in the car and they really hate going in the car then you could spray that um you know on a on a blanket that they then lie on and it can have a real beneficial effect there so yeah dog appeasing pheromone or adaptil would be kind of my first suggestion and generally it does have a great effect in a lot of dogs the next possibility for trial treatment for for this anxious dog would be herbal supplements so that can include things uh, products like carmex 
or zilkine. Now, if we start with zilkine, that contains um, milk casein, which is then broken down into a benzodiazepine-like chemical. So benzodiazepines, if we think of those like diazepam or Valium, you will be uh, more familiar with, they have a real anxiolytic effect. So it helps reduce anxiety. That's what that means. Now, the, the zilkine and the, the milk casein products are going to be less potent, but it can have that same similar kind of effect. And then Carmex contains a drug called um, methysticum. I think that's pronounced correctly, which can have a mild sedative and relaxation effect as well. And it's been shown to have that. But there's not very much evidence behind Carmex, um, really, and also Zilkine. So it may or may not make much of a difference. And I think this is going to vary a lot depending on how anxious your dog is, how nervous they are, or how scared they are if we're using it in those situations. Um, you know, and maybe a little bit about the individual dog and the timing that we're giving and all that kind of thing. On the plus side, they're both very, very safe products, as dog appeasing pheromone is clearly. Um, so there's definitely something to to try or to consider trying. And then finally, kind of the next treatment trial option would be to actually use pharmaceuticals. Now, clearly, you're going to have to discuss this with your vet because not all pharmaceuticals are going to be appropriate for every dog, depending on, again, what type of anxiety they're showing, but also their other medical history. So what's their liver function like, their kidney function, that kind of thing. Um, but this can include drugs um, like uh, clomipramine would be an example of that. So clomicarm is the, the trade name um, of that drug. And that can have a really beneficial effect. Certainly where I am um, in New Zealand uh, a few years ago, I forget when, there was a big earthquake in Christchurch, which caused an awful lot of damage. Unfortunately, a number of deaths, but there were a lot of dogs who became very anxious as a result of that. Now, I was um, only about an hour away from that and a lot of people moved down to the town that I was living in and they brought their dogs with them who were very anxious all of the time because of of that major earthquake and the ongoing tremors and certainly a drug like um, clomipiramine or clomicarm it made a big difference for a lot of dogs they only needed it for a month or two and then their anxiety levels kind of dropped and stayed really nice and low so you know don't write off pharmaceuticals as an option for this if uh, the anxiety is felt to be triggered by uh, yeah by a shock or a, 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 a kind of a fearful event if you like the other potential option was senility now Anxiety is definitely something that we can think of in senile dogs, but the big signs of senility in dogs uh, can be kind of broken down into the acronym DISHA. So that stands for D, disorientation. I is interaction reduction. Now, that is something that can actually be the reverse. So a dog, if a dog's anxious, then they can actually increase their interaction. But interaction reduction is very common. We can have sleep-wake cycle changes. So they become uh, kind of sleeping all day and awake at night or have changes that you know, from their normal kind of sleeping patterns. House soiling is another one. So a dog who's previously, you know, very well house trained, starting to have accidents in the house. And then activity changes is the other one as well. Now, a dog who has one symptom of this should make us suspicious. But, you know, if we're thinking of those as potential signs of senility, you know, tick them off the list. If we're having two or more of these um, signs of senility, then it makes the condition much more likely. And what I'll do is I'll include a link in the show notes to an article that gives a complete overview of senility in dogs. And it includes the signs of, you know, this really common disease, but also the treatment options, as well as the long-term prognosis. So rather than go through that for Lou's dog, um, I'll direct you there and, and definitely head over there if you're interested in that. It is a really common condition. So actually, it's a pretty good thing for any dog owner to notice because it's also massively underdiagnosed. So if you know what to look for, if 
you know the signs of that, you'll be able to get onto that sooner rather than later with your dog. And then finally, I'd just say that if there's really no improvement with behavioural treatment and management, um, senility is felt to be unlikely, then definitely consider consulting with a qualified animal behaviourist because these problems can be really tricky to get on top of um, and it can take a trained person coming in, seeing the dog in their home environment to try and come up with a successful plan to treat them. So if her anxiety is actually really bad, then actually this step is going to be better considered sooner rather than later as well because the longer behavioural problems go on for, the harder they are to correct. And then before we jump into the next question, I just wanted to let you know about the Knowledge Vault. So if you're not already aware, the Knowledge Vault is the one place to go where you can access all of my free resources, which includes various different guides such as solving problem peeing in cats, stress, pain checklists in dogs and cats, treatment monitoring guides, drug information sheets. It's got a summer dog care guide. It's got a raw versus kibble ebook. It's got different calculators. There's loads of information on there that is relevant and valuable for any dog or cat owner so you can access that just by heading to rpetshealth.com slash resources or head to callthevet.org and follow the link there and then question number two is from Cherie who uh, who writes in asking or saying that my dog is 15 years old and has been eating a grain-free diet of Beneful with wet pedigree for about six to eight months and he started panting while in a resting state. Now he doesn't act like he's hurting anywhere. He jumps off the couch and he runs around so um, Cherie's not thinking about arthritis. What could the problem be? So panting, if we start off with that, it can be a sign of a any kind of number of diseases. There's lots of different things that can cause an increase in panting. And it's definitely not normal in a dog who is resting. So sure, if you know, you've know you got a dog who's exercising hard and recovering immediately after exercise, sure, panting is fine. If it's very hot, um, if it's hotter than normal, then again, panting is a normal, natural thing to do for a dog to, to lose heat. But in a dog who's, who's resting um, in what we would call a thermoneutral environment, so an environment that's not too, not too hot, and also not too cold uh then you know panting is not normal so yeah Cherie's absolutely right to think of pain pain in dogs is a massive problem especially in a 15 year old dog i'm sure he doesn't say what breed um what breed her dog is but um arthritis is common in every breed so we think of it as a large breed problem but actually uh, dogs of any size and cats of any size too um, can suffer from arthritis it's incredibly common so you know good job for Cherie for thinking about that but yeah she's not thinking about thinking that that's too much of a problem um, I did mention the the knowledge vault and um, there is actually a pain checklist there so that would be potentially worth going through um, but other causes of panting could be lung disease so like a chronic bronchitis though you'd also expect a cough uh, in, in those cases a heart disease would be another problem and then hormone problems would be something else to think about that so there's different, you know, different hormone abnormalities, different diseases there that can also cause panting. So the typical one in in most cases would be something like Cushing's disease. So you can see that these are all very different conditions that are all treated and managed in very different ways. And because of this really kind of, and I say this a lot, but consulting your vet is very important. So an examination may make all the difference. So your vet is going to listen to listen to the heart, listen to the lungs, and they're going to hear any abnormality there. So is there a heart murmur? Is there an arrhythmia? So the beat isn't a nice regular pattern like you would expect. Um, you know, what's the pulse quality like? So having a little feel of the um, the pulse, especially in relation to the heart. Is there a pulse for every heartbeat? Is the pulse kind of really nice and strong? 
strong or is it quite weak and thready which would suggest a problem there um you know are the gums nice and pink do they uh, does the, the the gums go white when you push on them but when you let go uh, go back to being pink very quickly you know what the what do the lungs sound like what are the breath noises like do they sound um really nice and clear or do they sound um all crackly like a bit like bubble wrap popping whenever your dog's breathing also limb manipulation so is there any thickening of joints is there any kind of creaking what we would call crepitus within a joint when when the, that's bent do they bend to their full extent is there resistance does your dog seem uncomfortable when certain manipulations are carried out so you know an examination can give us a huge amount of information and is really very important but it's often i'm um, kind of undervalued you know not necessarily by vets but by pet owners i think you don't necessarily appreciate how much information we can get from an examination which is obviously a very easy um very non-invasive um and cheap way to to kind of start investigations blood tests may also be needed so especially if we're thinking of kind of hormone problems or other diseases there but heart disease there is a blood test that can potentially look at that then x-rays which are great at looking at lungs looking at at the heart is there any evidence of heart failure and then there are various other tests so um things like a bronchoalveolar lavage which is where fluid is put into the lungs and then taken out of it and had a look to see if there's any signs of chronic bronchitis so you know there's a number of different things that can be done to try and kind of find what the problem is and you know they're all going to test slightly different things and look for very different diseases so it is important now and I wonder if Cherie was thinking about the recent um, grain-free diet kind of saga, if you like. So if you're not aware of this already, then there is a recent link between grain-free diets and heart certain type of heart failure in dogs so a dilated cardiomyopathy and that is in diets that especially contain that are like grain free like i say but contain lentils peas or potato as kind of the primary carbohydrate source so um Benefil actually wasn't on the list of the most common diets to have been implicated in this problem so whether it has been involved or or not in this it's not known certainly it's not been released by the fda who are investigating this problem um you know you can actually have a look at the ingredients so does it contain primarily lentils peas or potatoes if it does then that's potentially going to be a problem and potentially the cause of this panting could be that Cherie's dog is in heart failure as a result of the diet and what I'll do is I'll leave a link in the show notes which will have all the details about this grain-free diet risk um, you know and this is another reason why a vet check is important I think any person who is feeding a grain-free diet who is showing potential signs of heart failure and as well as panting it could be um, becoming uh, just I'm um, not being able to exercise well so kind of pulling up short after a short period of exercise it can be coughing as well it could be collapse I um, you know there's a number of different things that there that we need to think about so yeah this is another reason why I think a vet check for Cherie's dog is going to be very important and then just bear in mind that I don't know your pet individually um, on a personal level I've never examined them and so the information that I give in these podcast episodes is only a guide and not specific advice for any individual always check in with your vet if your pet has any health concerns or you've got any concerns about how they're behaving or how they're feeling get your questions answered at callthevet.org and then my final question comes from Justin, who writes, um, I would like to see some scientific evidence to prove that dogs have adapted to processing carbohydrates. Has the digestive tract become longer to ferment these carbohydrates? Do they have more amylase? Has their mole, have their molars changed to help with the emulsion? 
do their mouths have lateral movement now? Has the hundred or so years of feeding bag dog food been enough for evolutionary changes? So this is the great feeding debate. And you can tell from the nature of Justin's question, as well as the way I read it, that he believes that dogs should be fed a raw diet like wolves, um, like the wolves that are their ancestors, with grains having no place, with carbohydrates having no place in a dog's diet and providing no value to them. So really, the simple fact, and I'll state it plain and simple, is that dogs are not wolves. But to explain why this is the case, we need to go back in time and discuss the evolution of the modern day dog. So it's commonly thought that dogs descended directly from the modern day grey wolf, but this simply isn't true. And to be honest, this isn't something that I was aware of until recently, but um, about 20,000 to 40,000 years ago, and the thinking is that it's closer to 40,000 than 20,000 years ago, is that the dog and the grey wolf split from a common ancestor. So this common ancestor, um, one branch went and developed into the grey wolf and another branch went and developed into the modern day dog. So dogs started hanging around human camps. They started scavenging off rubbish and waste and soon they started sharing our huts. They started hunting with us and that was a trait which humans then started to breed for. And the rest really is history as dogs became the companions they are today. But I can hear you thinking that, well, 20 to 40,000 years, it sounds a long time, but actually in evolutionary terms, it's really the blink of an eye. And it actually does typically take about one million years for a new species to emerge. But, and this is a big but, this is with natural or normal natural selection. Dogs, though, they didn't come about through normal natural selection process and survival of the fittest in the Darwinian sense in the same way that other species have typically developed. And I'm just going to put in here, um, I had a comment on my YouTube video uh kind of completely disagreeing with with um with natural selection when, with evolution um yeah so if you're in that camp then you're probably best not to listen to the rest of this podcast but um humans really instead of this normal natural selection process kind of fueling evolution humans instead have aggressively and relentlessly selected for the characteristics that made dogs suitable companions so the ability to hunt but also the ability to protect them and not to attack the family the ability to provide companionship the ability to work with livestock without attacking and eating them the ability to be a child's plaything and look cute and the ability not just to survive but to thrive on kitchen scraps and leftovers without vomiting and having diarrhea all over the place maintaining their weight maintaining their muscle so we can think of this really like a natural selection on steroids and if you're thinking this sounds far-fetched then actually there's been a recent breeding program of foxes in russia that started in 1959 and that showed that it took less than three years to breed out aggression in these foxes and it only took eight generations to view humans as non-threatening and begin showing dog-like affection towards humans so if we think that only happens in it only takes eight generations you know 40,000 years does start to start to become quite a long time with this kind of supernatural selection if you like and then let's talk about dna and how much dna dogs and wolves share and this is really where i then get into kind of the differences in diets and what we can feed dogs and wolves so dogs and wolves share about 98.8 uh, percent of the same dna so they only differ by about 1.2 percent and they can breed with each other and produce viable 
um, fertile offspring. So, you know, there's clearly going to be a lot of differences there. You know, if we think of dogs themselves, so they only differ in their genome, genome by about 0.15%, you know, give or take. So there's massive similarities. But then, you know, 1.2% doesn't sound like much of a difference, but humans and chimps, they only differ potentially by about 4%. You know, there's a little bit of difference of opinion in that, but, you know, that's kind of the most commonly cited figure. So, you know, so, so that just shows that a little difference can go a very long way. When I'm talking about the difference between dogs and wolves, you know, I'm thinking that there's no controversy in the fact that there are massive differences in genetic diseases between dog breeds. So, you know, certain breeds of dog are more prone to certain types of conditions so uh, a west highland white terrier they get they have a massively increased incidence of allergic skin disease for example you know and that's just just one thing certain certain dogs have um you know really high prevalence of hip dysplasia others will have bleeding problems um others will have immune problems so you know there's very big differences between dog breeds and remember there's only about 0.15 percent difference in the dog genome so why then is it so hard to accept that when it comes to the digestive process wolves and dogs are most definitely not the same and there's clear evidence for this so with respect to diet there are three key differences in the genome of the wolf and the dog that really we can think of and we can we can highlight when it comes to digesting starch so dogs have three genes that wolves don't have all of which play an important role in the digestion in the digestion of starch and i'll link these genes if you're interested in the show notes dogs also have four to 30 copies of the gene for amylase so that's a protein that um that that starts the breakdown of starch in the intestines wolves on the other hand have only two copies and the result is that the this gene in dogs is 28 times more active than it is in in wolves and the result of this is that studies suggest that dogs should be about five times better at digesting starch than wolves because of this difference alone so that's not taking into the into account other differences and then finally maltase is another enzyme that's used to digest starch and actually dogs and wolves they have the same number of multi maltase genes not maltese that's the type of dog maltase genes Uh, and the difference here though is that dogs they code for a longer version of the maltase enzyme and this is this long version is also seen in herbivores so like cows and rabbits and also some omnivores such as um, rats but not in other mammals and this suggests that this longer version of maltase is very important in plant eating animals so that's something that dogs have also developed which is different from wolves so all of this means that it's simply not true that dogs can't digest grains and that they are worthless or even a harmful additive to a dog's diet in fact the opposite is clearly true so dogs can absolutely digest grains Um, they can extract significant nutritional benefit and value from these grains so these grains are valuable additives now there's different types of grain and there's different ways that those are produced and they're certainly not going to be um you know they're not all going to be equally as valuable but the broad idea that dogs and wolves are the same and that dogs cannot digest grains and they're harmful or they're useless is just simply not true and so on that note that's it for this episode of the podcast. I hope this week's answers have given you some food for thought and will help your pet be as happy and healthy as possible. Remember to subscribe and remember that you can submit your question over at callthevet.org. And until the next episode, take care. You've been listening to Call the Vet. 
Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show that answers all of your pet questions.